welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. All right. Well, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we left off during our scripture reading in verse 51. But before we do that, um, I'd like to add a few follow-up comments from our study last week concerning Stephen, uh, the closing of chapter 6. You know, God had given Stephen a, a, a generous amount of scriptural understanding uh, in which he, he'd been using this to reason with his Jewish brethren that Jesus is the Christ who is promised throughout the Old Testament. And he based his argument on citing the law, citing the, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, uh, obviously, at that time, uh, no New Testament scripture had yet been written. Similarly, on the day of Pentecost, which was about two years earlier, Peter had based his proclamation that Christ had to suffer and to die and to be raised again from the dead, also based upon the Old Testament. And then years later, when we get to Acts chapter 17, uh, we'll discover that there were people in Berea. They were commended for searching the Scriptures uh, to see as if the things that, that the Apostle Paul was teaching them were so. Um, and of course, all the Bereans had in their possession at that time was the Old Testament. And of course, before any of this at all in Acts, Christ Himself when he rose on the third day, uh, approached two men on the road to Emmaus uh, that same day where we're told in Luke chapter 24, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself that were written in all the scriptures. Again, Old Testament only existing at that time. So to the Jews, Stephen had preached Christ to them through the Hebrew Scriptures. That alone should have provided enough evidence. That's sufficient evidence that Jesus is the Christ. But furthermore, Stephen's verbal declaration was also, uh, like the Twelve, it was validated through him performing, Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 tells us, uh, performing great wonders and attesting signs or miracles. Now, we aren't told exactly what types of miracles Stephen performed, uh, but next chapter, that'd be chapter 8, uh, we will see similar supernatural phenomenon uh, displayed through Stephen's friend named Philip, uh, who was healing, among other things, paralytics. Uh, so these are bona fide miracles. You know, they're not just healing somebody's headache. You are making a rash go away. Uh, genuine miracles they were. And therefore, the accuracy of what Stephen had been teaching the Jews, it, it was validated by God through signs and wonders. 
And you know, accompanying miracles at this time in the Bible, early on, they, they weren't entirely unusual before the New Testament was written. The period that we are studied, studying in Acts, it was a transitional time when the disciples like Stephen and Philip, uh, they, 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 they enjoyed, um, they, they didn't enjoy as we do the sighting of the New Testament. We have the added benefit of the New Testament scriptures they didn't have. So God, during this time, he did on occasion validate the truthfulness of a spoken message through miracles. But today we have no basis to imitate or replicate uh, these things. Uh, Messages we hear today, when you listen to a message uh, online or here in in this building or anywhere, The messages preached today are not validated by accompanying miracles, but by comparing them to what God has said in His Word today, including the New Testament. And as I stated a couple weeks ago, sinners are born again through the living and enduring Word of God. That's how we become new creatures. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. That's where faith comes from. Still, at Stephen's moment in history, these supernatural wonders did add much credence to everything that he was saying, including that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. Did these signs and wonders cause his audience to listen? Did signs make them compliant and heed Stephen's message. Did they enhance faith? No, no. Rather, Stephen's audience rejected everything, including him, uh, and they, they secretly induced men to fabricate lies about Stephen so that they could try him in a court as a blasphemer. The miracles didn't facilitate faith, but were given by God as a supplemental witness that everything Stephen was telling them was the truth. Uh, Which brings us to consider this strange feature that was seen on Stephen's face. Notice the closing verse of chapter 6. Referring to the priestly class, the members of the Sanhedrin court, there were 70 of them. Um, it, it, it says, And fixing their gaze on Stephen, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Having fixed their gaze on Stephen tells us that everybody there was locked onto him. Everybody in the, in the courtroom had a clear view of Stephen and his angel face. So what does Scripture mean to suggest when, say, when saying that Stephen's was like an angel's face? Uh, there's been several ideas that have been proposed. Uh, we, we don't know for certain. Uh, some believe it has to do with a sense of calm, a, a peace, a confidence um, with which they saw him. That's, that's probably true. But I suggest when we recall Exodus chapter 34, each time that Moses met with God, Scripture tells us 
God used to speak with Moses face to face. Just as a man speaks to his friend, we're told in Exodus 33. And the skin on Moses' face would begin to glow. It would emit light. The Bible says that Israel would see that that Moses' face, it shone brilliantly uh, glowing uh, each time or after each time he had met alone with God. Angels likewise who stand and minister in the presence of God's glory, they're described in Scripture as emitting light. Uh, Just to provide one example here, uh, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 9, when an angel of the Lord appeared before the shepherds, they were one the ones waiting uh, on their flocks or waiting by their flocks by night uh, to announce that Christ had been born in Bethlehem, we're told that the shepherds were, were frightened because the glory of the Lord shone around them. So angels that are dispatched from the presence of God discharge a bright light. Therefore, it'd be my assumption and, and the conclusion of, of some uh, that uh, like Moses and angels, the face of Stephen had begun to glow. I was going to hold a flashlight up to my face here <laughs> just, to, just to make the point. Why would God do that? Well, consider the criminal charges brought against Stephen at the end of chapter 6. We find that twice Stephen is falsely accused of speaking against God and against Moses. A big part of Stephen's sermon is about Moses. And then during his sermon in chapter 7, Stephen tells the council several things about the relationship between God and Moses and Israel. Yet before Stephen even begins to speak, It's almost as if the priests look at him in the face and God is saying, what is it you see? It's a face like Moses. It glows. It's like the angel. More evidence. God God is testifying again and again that Stephen, just as Stephen begins testifying to God, you have the miracles, you have the scriptures, you have this face all of this evidence God is giving to Israel. Who who is actually the one speaking for God in this courtroom? It's a man with a glowing face. It's a man validated by miracles. It's a man who's citing all the scriptures. And it appears that uh, perhaps God is providing one more confirmation of Stephen at his trial. That this is my man. How should that affect us? Well, As I read verses 51 to 60, for one thing, uh, we're not to view Stephen as some kind of over-the-top religious fanatic who just can't keep his mouth shut at the right time. God is with him all the way. Scripture assures us that Stephen is full of wisdom. He's full of the Holy Spirit. It's been validated by miracles. His face is possibly glowing. That might suggest that on some occasions that arise, we, we might ought to look a little more like this. 
You know, a pastor, for just one example, um, is to recognize his role is, is not to just pacify false doctrine or, or to let it go just, just for the sake of peace. Stephen reminds us that sometimes you have to stand on Scripture. Uh, we're not to compromise ultimately on uh, that which Scripture is clear about. Um, Still, we acknowledged, last, we acknowledged last week that Stephen wasn't here out picking a fight. He didn't have a martyr's complex. Um, yet when testimony begins, he does not hold back one bit. And at the root of this conflict, it, it was this, this intolerable claim, completely intolerable uh, by Stephen that the temple would soon be destroyed. Of course, it was Jesus' claim as well. Um, And the conflict does, in fact, alter the customs handed down by Moses to some degree, anyhow. The the priests can't stand to hear it. Because if, if what Stephen has said is true, they know that their gig is up. If there's no longer any need for a temple and God accepts no other sacrifice, as we clarified from the book of Hebrews last week, uh, what then is there for all these unemployed priests to do? When, When Stephen insisted that Jesus is going to destroy this temple, note that this is received by the priests as a direct attack against their prestige and their privilege and their prosperity, not to mention the exclusivity of their office as well. The priests see their livelihood being attacked. It's hanging in the balance as as Herod's temple and the sacrificial system had remained a very lucrative enterprise. These were very influential and wealthy Men, um, and when the high priest heard that Stephen said, "You know, the temple's finished," so are the sacrifices. I can only imagine the tone in chapter seven and verse one, when turning to Stephen, the high priest said, "Oh, are these things so?" So Stephen's reply over fifty verses is, "Yeah, these things are so." And we read that together earlier where he traced the history from Abraham all the way down until Solomon had built the temple. That is the first temple. And in the minds of, of the priests, Solomon's temple would have embodied the greatest glory that was ever seen in Israel. Yet Stephen, the man who in their eyes is an assailant, He had the audacity to conclude in verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. So they're infuriated. The scene is intense for all of these reasons as we continue reading now from verse 51. Stephen says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. 
Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. That's referring to Christ. Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then having said this, he fell asleep course, a euphemism that Scripture uses for those who have died. So we know the priests were, were already uh, very upset, offended by Stephen's posture against the temple, uh, but there is probably no greater insult to a Jewish priest than referring to him as uncircumcised. They know by being described as uncircumcised, Stephen is alleging that you are not members of God's covenant. Boy, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen's coming across a little bit judgy, isn't he? I guess Matthew 7 wasn't written yet, huh? Judge not lest ye be judged. Or no, actually... Matthew 7 goes on to continue to say, if you find a false teacher, oh, you bet you judge him. Be a little judgy. But Stephen bases his claim on what he can observe, what can be observed with the priests, and that would be their continual resistance of the Holy Spirit over a two-year period now, ever since the day of Pentecost. Since the Spirit was poured out on the Jews, and resisting the Spirit proves they are not circumcised in heart. That indicates that their heart is not right. It's not repentant. They haven't owned up to betraying and murdering the Christ. You know, these priests, many of whom had committed to memory the Torah. That would be the five books of the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, these priests knew exactly what uncircumcised in heart meant. It was during Moses' second giving of the law, that's recorded in Deuteronomy, after Israel had rebelled and worshipped by, a, a, by making a golden calf, Moses came down from Sinai. This is when he had the replacement tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And there Moses told Israel, 
circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. It's Deuteronomy 10 verse 16. Stephen has just called them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Resisting of the Holy Spirit, nonetheless, they know exactly the charge that he is making against them. John MacArthur's note on Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16 states, quote, Moses called the Israelites to cut away the sin of their hearts as the circumcision surgery would cut away the skin. And MacArthur concludes rightly that this would leave them with a clean relationship to God. Uh, so even under the old covenant, Moses demanded that the deadness of your heart needs to be cut away. So Stephen is saying, you know, it was actually Moses who commanded this in the law. But you've proven that you are not like Moses. Meanwhile, Stephen can say, look at my face. Who do I look like? And the result is they they just become further infuriated uh, because the priests were all circumcised in the flesh. But they were not spiritually circumcised in the heart. And they would also know it was through the prophet Jeremiah where the Lord had proclaimed to Israel, get this, Behold, the days are coming that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. For all the nations are uncircumcised and the house of Israel is uncircumcised at heart. The Lord says the problem is universal uncircumcision. I just made that up. But under the old covenant or new, man's problem has always been a deadness of heart. Every person since Adam has been born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. uh, Total human depravity is our universal condition at birth. Sadly, we are all born that way. We're sick at heart. And addressing this sinful heart that we are each born with, and doing so, our, our Lord God visits us in our fallen situation. God promised a, a remedy through that same prophet Jeremiah that he would give us a new covenant, which provi- provides for us a new circumcised heart. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 31. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. God's promise of a new heart, it's stated at the offering of the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Where the Lord also says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, 
So, so there must be, according to the Old Testament existing at that time, there must be a change of covenants that involves the heart. And God likewise says, through the prophet Ezekiel, this is chapter 36 and verse 26, concerning the same new covenant. Listen to this. God's promise through Ezekiel. You think he can preach from the Old Testament? Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, the Lord promised, quote, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone, the dead heart, from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a live heart, a beating heart. He continues, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to, work in, to walk in my statutes. That's Ezekiel. The wording of Stephen, it it provokes these priests. How God, uh, through Israel's ancient prophets, had always promised He would give a new heart. A circumcised heart, along with a new spirit that God would provide. Uh, But how does the high priest in this Sanhedrin court uh, respond to the offer of a new covenant? Well, they become the stiff necks that Moses warned about. And they have always resisted the Holy Spirit. And at heart, they remain uncircumcised. Stephen says, you guys are uncircumcised. You're not even a member of the Mosaic Covenant, much less the New Covenant. Remember what... Jeremiah told Israel, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet remain uncircumcised. For all the nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. Boy, calling them uncircumcised, Stephen is now picking a fight. And, And what did Israel do to the holy prophets that God had sent them. If you were in adult Bible class earlier this morning, you can now take a nap. What did God do? Uh, uh, When God sent the holy prophets, what did Israel do to them? Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 25, well, they beat one, they killed another, they stoned a third, and again, God sent another group Larger than the first, they did the same thing to them. Next, in, in the same parable of the landowner, including a vineyard, uh, what did God do? Well, afterward, he sent his son, saying, well, they will, re- they will respect my son. But when they saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And it's imperative that they recognize that they had killed God's son. Stephen, saying the same thing in other words to the council, uh, asked them in verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. 
And how do they respond? It says in verse 54, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Being full of the Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Folks, these words may not leap off the page at us because we don't know our Old Testament as well as Stephen. But Stephen just proclaimed to this council Daniel's prophecy concerning the Son of Man. And the prophet Daniel, who remained highly respected in Israel, in chapter 7 of verse 13 of Daniel, he writes down the following vision of what he sees. Daniel writes, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he, the son of man, came up to the ancient of days. Ancient of days is an Old Testament title for God. We sang about it earlier. And the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before God. And Daniel says, and to, given him, and, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, the nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." This is the word of the prophet Daniel. Sounds a whole lot like the New Testament, doesn't it? Stephen tells him, I see it too. I see what Daniel saw, just as he had seen it. This Jesus, the Son of Man, is standing next to God, and God has given him an everlasting kingdom that will have no end People of every language and nation, Daniel said, will now come and serve him. Well, the high priest and the council cannot stand the wisdom with which Stephen speaks. These same men were present when Jesus had told what God will ultimately do through the parable of the landowner. After they had killed the son, Jesus asked them, Matthew 21, uh, what they thought the father might do to those who killed his son. And in their own words, they replied, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and, and rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in the proper seasons. Again, this is found in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says to the priests in reply, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. All these prophecies from Moses and the prophets and Jesus, Son of God, have now, have now landed heavy on these priests. Stephen becomes like a lightning rod for all of these things at one moment in time. 
those priests, they were not dumb people. They, 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 were, not, they were not ignorant of Scripture. They were actually quite accomplished and, and bright men, according to the world. And this is what they've heard. Your temple is going to be destroyed because the covenant has changed. You are the stiff necks who never did listen to Moses. You are those uncircumcised spoken about through the prophets. You have by that proven that you are not part of God's covenant. God's Spirit is not with you. You resist Him. And God has taken His kingdom away from you, speaking to Israel, and handed it over just as Daniel predicted He would. And the Son of Man has been given an eternal kingdom, an everlasting dominion that has been dispersed among every tongue, tribe, and nation. To the, to the Jew, that, that everything the priests have heard, that is unconscionable, unacceptable to them. In verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at Stephen with one impulse. When they'd driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Of course, we noted last week the compassion in Stephen. Uh, he didn't address these people because he wanted them to perish. He began addressing them because he wants them to wake up and be saved. You know, this week as I was studying, and just, I was trying to process what these priests were thinking in all of this. And, and I got a splitting headache. I, I really did. Thinking of the hatred and the fury with which they were stoning Stephen. They truly hated him. It made, me, it made me almost sick to my stomach to watch them allow this to slip right through their hands. Entrance to the kingdom through Jesus slips right through their hands. For those of you who remember sitcoms, television shows from the 60s, there's a show there called Get Smart. They missed it by that much. For the, the rest of you who don't remember that show, this Maxwell Smart was a, was a secret agent. He's called Agent 86. And uh, he worked in Washington counterintelligence, all right? He was totally inept completely incompetent for his tasks, but through the gadgetry which the, the agency provided him, Maxwell Smart was always able to thwart the enemies. Came through in the end. Folks, everybody here needed to get smart. But not through gadgetry provided by Washington, but through a new heart that is provided by God. One that is alive to God. You know, God provides it. All you have to do is recognize your sin and that you need it. 
recognize that Jesus bore the punishment for your sins by dying on the cross. Recall what Moses said. Circumcise. Cut away the deadness of your heart. Circumcise your heart. Stiffen your necks no longer. And God provided a promise in a new covenant that He will give you a new heart. But it's not a cutting away of the flesh in circumcision. It's cutting out your old dead heart, a heart of stone, to provide you one that is alive and is beating for Jesus Christ. Folks, uh, think about this. The sign of God's covenant today the sign that you are truly part of God's covenant today remains circumcision. But it's not a cutting away of the flesh, but a cutting away of the sin from the heart. All Christians must be circumcised. Colossians 2 verse 11 states, In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That refers to a circumcision of the heart, the circumcision made without hands. Every Christian has it, and circumcision remains a sign of God's covenant with us. But Romans 2 verse 28 reveals the nature of our circumcision. It's no longer made in a surgical procedure by a physician. The Apostle Paul writes, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. The letter of Romans will continue to expand and explain that a true descendant of Abraham is not one who is circumcised in the flesh, But Abraham's true descendants are called a Jew is one whose person has the same faith as Abraham. It's Romans 4 verse 13. That's another topic for another day. But uh, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 6, that I'll make you a father of many, um, that was made while Abraham remained uncircumcised. He wasn't circumcised in the flesh. And that Abram, at that time was his name, he believed God. And that faith, we are told, was credited to him as righteousness. And the righteous, we know, will live by faith. And because he had faith, Abram's name would now be changed to Abraham, because Abraham means a father of many. Ensuring God's promise that through faith, Abraham would become a father of many nations. Folks, there, there is a shadow, there is, there is a reflection of the new covenant and the grafting in of the Gentiles by faith way back in Genesis chapter 15. Many nations are Abraham's seed should also make a quick note 
um, because this can sow confusion. Um, if you're familiar at all with a theology called covenant theology, um, covenant theology uh, mistakenly concludes that infant baptism today is a sign of a new covenant. Um, that they conclude that infant baptism today, the way they reason this is infant baptism today replaces circumcision of back then. But whether you are drenched with water as an infant or an adult, that does not make you a Christian. You need a repentant heart by faith. And that is the only thing that can save you. You don't need to get wet in order to be saved, said the thief on the cross. He didn't say it exactly that way. It's not about getting wet or what age they get wet. For that, you have to go to what the New Testament teaches. That it's believers who profess faith in Christ through water baptism. And God gives a repentant heart through faith. That is the only thing that can save you. God gives it. You have to receive it. Ultimately, Stephen informs the priests that the new covenant is here. Your hearts reveal that you are not in it. How's your heart? Are you alive to Christ? Ultimately, they kill him uh, much violent with much violence. And um, I have just a few closing thoughts on Stephen. Um, I, I better cover these today because Stephen doesn't appear again in our narrative. He's gone. So number one, maintaining the truth of Jesus Christ is worth dying for. If there ever arises a situation where your life hinges on a testimony for Jesus Christ, there exists no reason to fear of death. I remember a story, I didn't have time to look it up, but came to me this morning of a, a young girl at, at Columbine. Way back in the day when Col Columbine uh, had that uh, shooting out there and so many were killed. And... Um, she was shot after she was asked if she's a Christian. And she told, told the man who was holding the gun, said, yes, I am. And he shot her. We do not have to fear death. Uh, we do not have to deny our testimony at any point. Number two, though Christians most often remember Stephen for dying for the gospel, we must not forget that is not his entire story. The introductory details of Stephen's life assure that Stephen lived for the gospel. And it is for this very reason that they took his life. Stephen's life would have never been in jeopardy if he hadn't first been living for Christ. And the fact he died completely undermines the false prosperity gospel that indicates, inaccurately states that 
It's God's promise and His will that all Spirit-filled Christians, uh, those who are really spiritual, will live long, be healthy, and prosper. No, that's Spock. That's Vulcan, folks. That's Vulcan theology. Stephen is a Christian, and he is full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit, and he is persecuted and dies for it. Which leads us to number three. Much more than assuring that the gospel is worth dying for, Stephen teaches us that the gospel is much more worth living for. And this begs a final question as we depart today. In light of Stephen, will we even do the smallest efforts to witness for Jesus Christ and advance his kingdom? And will our smaller efforts increase our courage and confidence to lead us into even bigger sacrifices for the gospel? And if not, why not? Do we have a problem in the heart? Let's close by asking God to reveal our hearts. Father, as we look at this this saint named Stephen and uh, consider the character that he had. He was chosen to serve the early church because his reputation was so good. His wisdom was so great that uh, those around him couldn't cope with what he would tell them from the Scriptures, so he was talented uh, with your word as well. and He was compassionate. He wanted to see uh, even these men who were stoning them to be saved. And he gave the ultimate sacrifice, uh, the highest uh, sacrifice anyone could give. And he gave up his life, Lord. Let us be reminded that he first gave his life for you before he gave it up for you. And Lord, convict us, our Father, uh, of where we could be more bold, more courageous, still loving, but that we might be useful to you um, during our lives and through this church. So be glorified through us, we ask. And as we you know, even ponder here that we just had a brother, John Sanford, uh, pass away, um, Those of us who knew him look back at his life as he served and he gave uh, all the way up until the end, Lord. We'd ask that we would be like that. We also ask that you'd comfort his family and that we could be a comfort to them ourselves and, and a blessing to your whole church, Lord. Thank you for our lives we share together, the joy, the laughter, the tears so precious all together in your Christ's name. Amen.